From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. With all the talk about COVID boosters, where does that leave people with the one-and-done J&J vaccine? There's a slight possibility that the mRNA vaccines may have slightly higher protection in terms of being boosted, but we don't really know that, and it's really hard to do a head-to-head comparison. Then, Coach Tremaine Jackson reflects on his legacy at Colorado Mesa University, racism, and social justice. When people don't know that there's an issue, they don't know. And, and when people don't want to see that there's an issue, they can act like they don't know. Plus, we catch up with a teen entrepreneur from Broomfield who has a new venture. I was interested in finding a way that I could provide other youth um, the same great experience that I did and give them an opportunity to share their ideas that are worth spreading. I give to CPR because it's just a great thing to support, especially during the pandemic. I felt it was important to pitch in my part. My day is not complete without CPR. And it's my pleasure to be able to give back. We are so grateful to our members who choose to be a part of Colorado Public Radio's community of support. Your donations strengthen the foundation for fact-based journalism and music exploration in Colorado. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. When talk of getting a COVID booster comes up, we often hear these words. The third dose. The third booster shot. A third shot. A boost. Of course, that third shot refers to the millions around the U.S. and here in Colorado who've had the two-dose mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. However, for the much smaller number of people given the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, these words... One and done shot. One and done. One and done approach. Have those wondering if their booster, a second shot, means they're as protected as their mRNA vaccinated peers. Here with the latest data and advice for those J&J vaxxed is Dr. Anuj Mehta. Dr. Mehta is a critical care and ICU physician at Denver Health. He's also advised the state on vaccine allocation and crisis standards of care. Dr. Mehta, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. According to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment's vaccine dashboard, around 307,000 doses of the J&J vaccine have been administered in the state, and the shot is still being given to people today. On the other hand, that same dashboard says roughly 3.6 million Moderna and 5.5 million Pfizer vaccine doses have been administered. Dr. Mehta, 300,000 doses is still a lot of people who have gotten the J&J vaccine. What's the booster situation with those people? In other words, are they protected from COVID-19 even though they've had one or two shots and not three? So I think it's a great question because we really need to recognize that even across the country, 12 million people have received Johnson & Johnson and it's still being given. I think that the data overwhelmingly supports that people who receive the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine upfront should receive a booster. And the current recommendations are two months after the first dose, they should get a booster, whether it's Johnson & Johnson or an mRNA booster. They're eligible for all of them. And we know that that additional booster provides really significant protection against severe disease and hospitalization. And there's actually very recent data coming out of South Africa that suggests that two doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has a roughly 85% protection against hospitalization from Omicron, which I think, you know, is the major concern right now. But with that said, is that 
the level of protection that someone who received a uh, an mRNA vaccine. People who have had the J and J shot seem to be playing catch up repeatedly over and over again. Yeah, and I can completely understand why people feel that way. I think the original data suggested that there was slightly decreased efficacy as compared to the mRNA vaccines, but there was the benefit of maybe just needing one dose. I think what we've realized as we've learned more during the pandemic, and that's one of the key things is that we're constantly learning more, um, is that additional doses, regardless of what type of vaccine you received up front, um, are necessary to ensure ongoing protection. And uh, you know, 85% protection with two doses of Johnson & Johnson to reduce the chances of being hospitalized, I think is pretty fantastic. Um, that's hmm. better than a lot of our other previous vaccines. And there is a possibility, um, there's a slight possibility that the mRNA vaccines may have slightly higher protection in terms of being boosted, but we don't really know that. And it's really hard to do a head-to-head comparison. I think what I can say is that regardless of your primary series, if you're eligible for a booster and you get a booster, you are have really good protection against uh, severe disease and hospitalization, even if you got Johnson & Johnson up front and get a Johnson & Johnson booster. You mentioned the J&J vaccine had a lower efficacy than the mRNA vaccines. Was there a thought that the lower efficacy wouldn't really matter because the other two vaccines were widely available? I think it was not that the lower efficacy wouldn't matter. It's that the efficacy at preventing hospitalization was very similar. And I think that's an important thing. When we think about vaccine efficacy, we can talk about preventing any infection, or we can talk about preventing severe severe disease and hospitalization. And the original data from Johnson & Johnson suggested that while preventing any infection was slightly lower, there was really good protection against severe disease and hospitalization. Obviously, times have t- changed. We've gone through Delta, now we're into Omicron. And uh, I think what we're seeing is that there continues to be really good protection against hospitalization for those who are eligible and get a booster. And, you know, the CDC and the FDA did release some early data on mixing and matching. And what we can see is that for people that got Johnson & Johnson up front, if they were to get an mRNA booster two months after that first dose, there does look to be slightly higher antibody levels. Well, I, I want to get to that question. You know, for someone who has had the J&J vaccine, you know, what type is preferred? You know, you're mentioning an mRNA. Is, is Moderna better than the other? Is it whatever the pharmacist may have that day? What is that? I, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough question. I think we, what, we, what we can look at with the data is that the mRNA vaccines seem to generate a higher antibody level against COVID following an initial dose with Johnson & Johnson. That being said, this latest data from last week coming out of South Africa really suggests that two doses of Johnson & Johnson are really effective at keeping you out of the hospital and developing severe disease. So it's hard to compare that data head to head. I do think that, you know, trying to aim for higher antibody levels may make a lot of sense. But for some people, they may only have access to J&J or they may have a preference for J&J as their second dose. And I think that's completely acceptable. Am I correct in saying that I, I, I remember the CDC saying that people should choose an mRNA if it was an option over J&J, but you're saying that maybe the data is a little bit different? Not, not that it's different, that I think um, the mRNA, again, the mRNA vaccines from a very small study suggest that, that when used as a booster, they lead to higher antibody levels against um, coronavirus. Now we have data that shows two Johnson & Johnsons are effective at keeping people out of the hospital. Um, so how do you weigh that? Do you take a large observational study or do you take a small, really well-controlled um, study? And it's hard to weigh those two data. I do think that aiming for higher antibody levels make a lot of sense. 
I tend to recommend people to seek an mRNA booster if possible, but I don't think people should be feel bad if they either only have access to a J&J booster or that's their preference. And there are some patients that have a strong preference about what they want. And it's, I would not want people to think that a second Johnson and Johnson is ineffective. I do think it's effective. There might be slightly higher efficacy if you use an mRNA booster. Right. And, and just to note on, on that last year, both the FDA and the CDC paused J&J distribution because of the possibility of rare blood clots. And last mm-hmm. month, the recommended use for J&J was narrowed again, specifically saying, uh, like I mentioned earlier, not to get the vaccine if mRNA vaccines were available, if that's correct. Um, but you were saying that it, it, it still is a, value, a valuable vaccine in, in the toolbox, right? Because I know for I, some, I so. J&J is the only option because of adverse reactions to other vaccines, right? I think that's entirely correct. I think that the CDC and the FDA have modified their recommendations um, and suggested mRNA over Johnson & Johnson, if possible. There is a side effect profile with Johnson & Johnson that you don't see with the mRNAs, and that's that rare blood clotting issue. The flip side of that with Johnson & Johnson is has some different storage capabilities, and it's going to be a valuable tool in terms of vaccinating the world where we don't have, you know, as great refrigeration techniques in in some developing nations. But I do think that in the U.S., if somebody has a strong preference or if they have had a bad reaction to an mRNA vaccine, Johnson & Johnson remains a viable option. But again, I do agree with the recommendation that if you can get an mRNA booster, because it does look like it leads to higher antibody levels, that may be a preference, but it's not a mandate and it's not an absolute requirement. From your perspective, doctor, how should the state and other institutions view J&J vaccinated people based on the data that we have today? Is one shot fully vaccinated? You know, I think, and, and this is my personal experience now working with people in the hospital, for people who are eligible for a booster, for J&J, one shot, I don't think provides a great deal of protection anymore against Omicron. And, and that being said, I think two doses of the mRNA vaccine, you know, while definitely good at preventing severe disease, and if you do get sick, you know, only mild symptoms, we're seeing breakthrough cases in people who are eligible for a booster and haven't actually sought one out. So I think mm-hmm. that a single dose of J&J is not going to be sufficient protection if you're more than two months out from it, and you should really get a booster. And I say the same thing, actually, for people that have had two doses of the mRNA vaccines and are now five or six months out, they should also seek out a booster. Do you think those recommendations are, are, are going to change about what is fully vaccinated, or, or, or are we kind of past that and we just need to say, let's get as many shots in this as possible, you know, to, to not put it lightly? I think the latter is true. I think we just need to try and get as many shots in as possible. How we define fully vaccinated, that, that has impacts on healthcare workers, I think, in terms of meeting uh, mandates from CMS, that's the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, uh, in terms of, you know, maybe going out to eat in some areas that have vaccine mandates. But eventually, all of that's going to go away. So I think mm-hmm. it's a little bit of a, you know, just go get the shot. I, I think how we define fully vaccinated is going to evolve over time. And eventually, when this becomes endemic, it may not even be important anymore. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Dr. Anuj Mehta, critical care and ICU physician at Denver Health. Dr. Mehta, I want to turn now to what Governor Jared Polis said earlier this week about the state of the pandemic here in Colorado and hospitals here during his monthly interview with my colleague, Ryan Warner. Omicron has hit hard. Hospitalizations are near the all-time peak. And crisis standards of care are not only in effect for healthcare staffing, but emergency medical services. Think ambulances and medics. Do you still believe that the medical emergency is over? 
Yeah, and it's important to talk about what I was saying. Uh, you know, you might remember in the first days of the pandemic in early 2020, there was a crisis in the sense that we had no masks, no gloves, no equipment, even in hospitals. People had to use the same mask for a week and we had to fight for every ventilator we had. There are now plenty of supplies. Uh, we have capacity. We've been in the you know, 90, 92, 93% capacity. That's not where the hospital system normally is, to be clear. Normally it's closer to 80%. About 20% of the people in hospitals are for COVID. About 80% of them are for something else. Omicron is more contagious, but thankfully, demonstrably less severe. And it can still, if you're unvaccinated, hospitalize you and, and be very difficult. But, you know, for those who are vaccinated, of course, you know, like any flu or cold, you don't want to get it. But it usually very seldom would require hospitalization or, or endanger your life. Dr. Mehta, what is your response to that? How concerned are you about the current state of the pandemic and the state of Colorado's hospitals? Um, I am in agreement with the governor on a lot of what he said, uh, for sure. And I, you know, appreciate all the support he's shown healthcare workers and hospitals throughout the pandemic and CDPHE as well. But I am very concerned about the state of hospitals in Colorado. We are operating at 93 to 95% capacity um, when we have for the last six weeks, or if not longer, with far fewer staff than we've had before, both because people have retired early from burnout, from moral distress, but also because we have more staff testing positive and, and, and being forced to isolate. And I think that has led to a situation where emergency departments and inpatient hospital units are bursting at the seams. But he's correct that we have more than adequate ventilators. We actually do have um, ICU capacity in the state, although individual hospitals may be filled. When you think about the statewide, we do have ICU capacity, but emergency departments and inpatient hospital units are really suffering to the point that the system is cracking in a lot of places. Does that mean that you would want to see the state institute crisis standards of care at hospitals? I think that the situation, and this is my personal opinion, I think the situation could warrant a partial activation of crisis standards of care for hospitals. And as the primary author of that and the chair of the group that developed them, I recognize that it's a really scary thing to say that. Um, yeah. What I want to reassure people is that this is not the situation where we're choosing who gets an ICU bed or who gets a ventilator. That's not what we need to do at this point. If you're really sick, you will get full critical care services in the state of Colorado. And if you're sick, you need to go to the hospital. You should go. If you have chest pain, if you're having trouble breathing, if you're having symptoms of a stroke, go seek emergency care. The problem is that we need equitable ways to decompress hospital systems. And that can be achieved in an equitable and transparent way through activation of crisis standards of care to allow hospitals to maybe discharge patients a couple of days early that may be able to seek outpatient care or taking patients in the emergency department that may have previously been admitted and setting up more rapid outpatient follow-up. And there are algorithms to do that in crisis standards of care. And that provides an equitable approach that can be implemented in all hospitals rather than a piecemeal approach. Doctor, final question. Is there a light at the end of the tunnel here? You know, we are hearing that case numbers nationwide are going down. The governor says he expects the same to happen here. You've said that it eventually will happen here. It's tough with the pandemic to say anything definitive about the future, but what can you tell us about later this spring and summer from your perspective for the everyday Coloradan? I do think that there is a potential light at the end of the tunnel for the everyday Colorado. My friends who are not in healthcare, I think there's a light of tunnel for them. 
I think that we will see case numbers go down. I think we'll see decreases in transmission. And I think for a while, given the number of patients that have been infected with COVID, mostly mildly so, there'll be a little bit of immunity in the community for a while. I am terrified of new variants emerging because we continue to do a very poor job on global vaccination plans. And that's really the driver of variants is the fact that we have such large populations around the world that are not vaccinated. But I am hopeful that there's a light at the end of the tunnel for um, general Coloradans for COVID. I think what I'm concerned about is beyond the emergence of a new variant, I'm worried about the status of our healthcare system now, and I'm very worried about the status of our healthcare system long term. Dr. Mehta, always appreciate your medical perspective. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Dr. Anuj Mehta, critical care and ICU physician at Denver Health. Dr. Mehta has also advised the state on vaccine allocation. What questions do you still have about the vaccines or COVID-19? Email us, coloradomatters at CPR.org, and let us know. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Read with Colorado Matters. For Turn the Page, we've chosen All That Is Secret by Patricia Raybon, a mystery set when the KKK loomed large. A young black theologian gets a telegram to come back to Colorado and find out why her father was killed. But she could be a victim herself. Read All That Is Secret and meet the author virtually February 8th. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. He was the first black head football coach at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. And after just two successful seasons, coach Tremaine Jackson is moving on. His tenure coincided both with the pandemic and the protests over police brutality, issues that no doubt made it into locker rooms and playing fields. Jackson is moving on to Valdosta State in Georgia. He joins us from his new home there to reflect on his time on the Western Slope. Coach Jackson, welcome to the program. Glad to be here, Nathan. Um, thanks for having me. As I just said, you were the first black head coach of CMU's football program. You'll be the first at Valdosta State, too. What kind of weight is that to carry? Um, it's heavy. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> heavy weight because... It's, uh, it's something that I didn't think I would be carrying, um, but no doubt I'm honored to carry it, and I look forward to, to being successful so that others that look like me can have the same opportunities that I've had. I think what's sad is I'm not the best African-American coach out there, uh, and sometimes I look and go, well, how did you get this opportunity? And so for me, it was a God thing, but uh, because I am in the position, we're certainly going to push forward to be successful so that others that look like me can can get these opportunities. That's interesting that you, that you say you're, you're not the best for the job. I mean, that's an interesting take, uh, being a head coach. Yeah, so, I, you know, for me, I'm, I've, I've been a part of coaching for 17 years. Um, and then I was coached by a lot of people as well in, in playing football since I was four years old. So I've met a lot of coaches. I've been around a lot of coaches. Um, myself and Archie McDaniel, uh, who is a linebacker coach at the University of Houston, we started an organization a couple of years ago called the Minority Coaches Advancement Association. And in that association, we, we have a lot of minority coaches, obviously, hence the name. Uh, but I've been able to work with those coaches, 
I do clinics with coaches, and we do it from all sports. But, you know, naturally football coaches find a way to get together. I've been very impressed with the coaches across the country that I've been able to come in contact with throughout my career and within our organization that I think are just way really talented and way more talented than myself. And, and so I look at it as I have the opportunity to uh, do well and so that people will hire other people that look like me. And I know that that generation is fruitful and, and it's coming up up behind me. And I'm excited for people to get to see. Well, we want to give credit where credit is due. I mean, you left the Mavericks an exceptional Division II team. Uh, your overall seasons, you went 10-3, and three, then 8-2 and two this season with a historic nail-biter of a victory over the Colorado School of Mines in October. That was the team's first victory over a top-five opponent since becoming a D2 school in the early 90s. Plus, you coached the Rocky Mountain Athletic Conference Offensive Freshman of the Year, Cards Hunter. I mean, Coach... This has been an incredibly tough few years for so many reasons. How did you inspire your players in, uh, frankly, uninspiring times? Uh, they inspired me. Hmm. Um, here, here's what we decided we were going to do as a football program. We weren't going to make any excuses. We were going to play the cards that were dealt to us, and we were going to believe in each other and love each other, and we were going to get through it. Um, we lost a lot of guys along the way. And when I first got to CMU, we had been a good football team, but we had some problems. And, and so we tried to fix our problems. And in doing so, we lost some people. And that made a lot of people mad because things had been hunky-dory and everything was okay being okay. And so uh, we were able to get in there and really clean up what we thought needed to be cleaned up. Um, and then COVID hit. And so right. that allowed, that gave us more time to continue to build and grow and put together a program. In my opinion, when I got to Colorado Mesa, we were a good football team. We were not a very good football program. And being a good football program entailed more than, than just wins on the field. We weren't doing much in the community. We had had some issues from a grade standpoint. Uh, we needed to clean up a lot of things. So in COVID, we were able to play a couple of games, but we were really able to clean up the interior of our house. I often compare Colorado Mesa football to a house like on flipping Vegas. Um, I saw this house I really liked, bought it, got inside of it, and realized that when I wanted to change the floors and the sinks, that there was mold and, and things behind it that needed to be cleaned up. So we did mm. that. We cleaned it up, and then we got our house ready for the market in 2021. And I think that's why we had success faster than most. I find that such an interesting analogy that because of COVID, no matter how negative it may feel, you took that into a positive and said, we're going to just you know step away from the field because we have to step away from the field and look at inside and, and, and take that time where there wasn't, you know, games being played to look at yourself and say, what can we fix and make better? Yeah. COVID really, you know, I tell people all the time, I didn't want anybody to get sick. I certainly didn't want to deal with the things we've had to deal with the last couple of years. Um, but COVID really helped the Mesa Mavericks um, because it gave us time when we needed more time. COVID also brought our team together. Uh, we all had to be in the weight room together um, and we were all together all the time. So it, it made us learn each other faster. And I remember riding to Black Hill State during the pandemic when we decided to play um, with masks and, and face shields on, and we looked like a bunch of Martians getting off the bus. Those players bought into doing that because they wanted to play. 
So it showed us what coming together looks like. And so we were able to carry those lessons over into our 2021 season and, um, and, and be successful on a lot of fronts. And that showed during that School of Mines, the Colorado School of Mines game in October. I mean, that was a big game for a few reasons, of course. A win like that hadn't happened before. But also, from what I understand, their program is much better funded than CMU's. Uh, plus, you went in kind of as an underdog, right? Talk about that. Yeah, well, well here's what people don't know. Um, because I've, I've heard this a lot from people around town. And they go, well, Mesa beat Mines before. And Mesa's done these things before. Well, that's that's true, but that's not totally true. And so five mm. or six years ago, everybody had the same amount of scholarships. The, the conference capped at 28. So nobody could have over 28. So when Mesa being at 22, 23, it was okay. It was okay because we were only six off. And when you say those numbers, you're talking about how many players you can have on scholarship, right? And the size of your roster because of that, meaning you were holding your own for a time against these schools, at least when it came to scholarship numbers, right? Scholarship numbers, yes. And years ago, they decided to let everybody who can go to 36 go to 36, which is the Division II maximum. Mesa didn't go to 36. And so Pueblo did, Colorado Mines did, and that's why the last few years, They've been really, really competitive. So for us to beat a team that has 13 more scholarships, meaning in Division II, when you have 13 more scholarships, that can be up to 30 more people. You can have mm. 30 more guys on 13 scholarships and probably more. And so for us to go and beat that team when they're number three in the country, when Mesa had never done that in the history of being Division II, was really special to me because as a coach, I know what other people have. As a fan – you just think it's all football. And so we know the resources that, that other folks have, and we, we didn't have those, and we were still able to win in spite of. Did you see advantages to, to that underdog status, or, or, or was it kind of a, a negative for you? No, it's, it's an advantage because you're looking at an underdog. When I got in the conference as the head coach, there was no other black head coaches. Um, I think me being hired as a black head coach in the RMAC, and not, not saying this to be boastful, but I think me being hired really led to the other two black coaches being hired later on after me in the conference at Fort Lewis and, and at Adams State. Um, mm. I think we, we kind of trailblazed that because we were doing some things and we were getting a response that was popular. And so I think the other administrators looked around and said, well, if there's, a, if there's another qualified coach uh, that looks like him, let's hire. Uh, and so I, I really think that those things played a, a huge role in, in us being successful. I want to talk about a memorable moment off the field. Uh, it came in June 2020 when you joined your players and others in a peaceful protest in Grand Junction against police brutality and how that opened a dialogue with the city's police chief, Doug Shoemaker. How did that come about and, and what sticks with you from that time period in Grand Junction? What sticks with me is, is Chief Shoemaker, his post on Twitter uh, after the George Floyd murder. Here we have the whole world's mad at the police, and we have a chief of police that's mad too, and that's saying that this is not policing. And I thought that opened the door, um, and it let me know that that chief was willing to have a conversation um, about how to make things better, when that wasn't popular. If you remember that time, it was us versus them. It was the, it was black people 
or, or angry white people that, that stood with black people against police. Hmm. I don't think all police are bad. I think that was some bad policing that day. And, and so for a guy to go out and, and check his own people, which is I think that that's what needs to happen a lot more in our world. He checked his own people. It allowed me to, to say, well, man, listen, I'm about to bring all these black, brown, uh, different race, different ethnicity kids to Grand Junction, Colorado. Let me have a conversation because we are the most diverse group. And I don't want our kids fearing to be pulled over by police. I'll tell you this one quick thing. In January of 2020, we were doing recruiting visits. And I had a player from Las Vegas. He came to me. He had just got pulled over by a cop. And he was shaking. And this was well before George Floyd. He was physically shaking because he ran a stop sign. He didn't stop long enough. And the police officer pulled him over in Grand Junction. He was, he couldn't even, like, he couldn't even, we had to sit him down and and really hold on to him because he was just really shaken up. Well, when I put that moment with what the chief said, it, it let me know that we had more than just a George Floyd issue. Our kids were scared of the police and scared to be pulled over because they didn't know what was going to happen prior to George Floyd. So now that we've seen George Floyd, our kids were really scared. So I felt like we need to do something. And I felt like Chief Shoemaker stood right there with me, and we have a great relationship today. Do you still speak with him? Every every week or twice Really? A week. I just texted him yesterday, yeah. We're boys now. Me and the chief are boys. <laughs> I like and that. It's not, it's not just because of what happened. It's because we found out that we have a lot of common goals. Now, he likes the Kansas City Chiefs. That, that's way different than me. But other than that, he ain't so bad. Well, and I love the fact that you're having this dialogue, that you're both open to this dialogue. And, you know, this may be putting too much into this, but had you not been hired as that coach, would we be having that conversation in Grand Junction? I doubt it. I really doubt it because the chances were there to have that conversation before. Um, and and here's, what, here's what I learned about Grand Junction. And this is not a bad thing. It's probably everywhere. But it really stood out to me in Grand Junction. Um, when people don't know that there's an issue, they don't know. And and when people don't want to see that there's an issue, they can act like they don't know. And so there was a little bit of both going on in that town where there were people that really didn't really see an issue because they never had to deal with it. And then there's people that were just tired of hearing about it and they didn't want to deal with it. So they acted like there was no issue. Well, we were able to reach both sets of people together. And, uh, and everybody's still not happy with him or I when we were going through that. But we reach more people than the people that are mad at us. So it's worth it. As a coach, regardless of where you are, you have a very large voice in the community. Um, I also heard that during that protest walk, you were approached by another younger black man who was concerned you weren't being fast enough. They wanted faster change and having to, to weigh that balance, right? Yeah. You know, I think I, I, I told somebody they questioned my blackness mm. and, um, you know, black people, regardless of what people might say, we don't act a fool. We, we're thinkers. I think most people are thinkers. And and so I thought about that situation as we were walking because I had no intention on walking to the from where we were down to the police station. That's something that just happened. But as we were walking in my thought process, I knew where we were going. I knew who we were going to see. And I knew what, what me and Chief Shoemaker had talked about. And he was a guy that wanted to listen uh, to everybody's opinion. And so what we weren't going to do, in my mind, we weren't going to attack the guy 
that wants to help us. And so when it started getting in an attacking fashion, we, we just didn't allow that. And so, um, you know, I, I'm fine with not being liked because I'm a football coach. So depending on how the game goes on Saturday, you like me or love me. So I'm, I've always been fine with that. Those guys didn't like it. They didn't think I was all in for the mission and vice versa. I didn't think they were because I didn't think mm-hmm. that was the game plan. They left, we stayed, and we got a lot more done by staying and talking than we did by yelling and cussing. Do you think there is is lasting change there now? Um, I mean, there's a story that I heard about you arriving at the Grand Junction Airport to begin your job. And then there is a story about your most recent departure from there when you left the job. Can you tell me what happened and how that all fits into this? Yeah, so when I got off the plane in Grand Junction January 2nd, 2020, I'm coming through the airport very I was coming from Austin, Texas, which is a huge airport, to, to Grand Junction Regional, which is you basically get off outside and come in for a second. And so there were some looks that I got like, who is the big black guy coming down the uh, escalator? As I was leaving to come here to Valdosta State, the American Airlines guy at the desk, I had a mask on, I had a red mask on, and I just kind of was fading in with everybody else, didn't have any any logos on or anything. He said, hey, coach, you're the guy that's been the head coach at Mesa. I said, absolutely. He said, I hear you're leaving us. I said, I am, unfortunately. He said, well, what you did here for the last two years, these bags are on us. And this was with with a mask on, he recognized me. Well, when I didn't have a mask on, I got looked at funny. Because of the work that I think we did with everyone in the community, I got my bags for free. I didn't even know they could do free bags at American Airlines. (laughs) It does show that we've made some progress. Will that progress continue? Um, I think it depends on a lot of different factors. It depends yeah. on who they hire as the head football coach because, in my opinion, the head football coach at Colorado Mesa has one of the biggest voices in town if he does it right. Uh, it depends on whether the community is open to it. If they do hire the right coach, the community has to stay open to it and not be afraid of somebody else leaving. That's just the nature of our business. People get fired. Either schools fire you or you fire the school. That's just what happens. And so I think there's room for long-lasting change, but everybody's got to do a good job of continuing conversations and being open to it. On the field, this talk of of, of racism and talk of uh, this reckoning kind of came to a head during your last game of the regular season against the South Dakota School of Mind in November of last year, where you heard some horrible slurs from the crowd. With all that was going on, with all that you'd accomplished in Junction, that must have been so disheartening to hear that on the field. Yeah, um, disheartening. Pissed is what it made me, honestly, um, because I couldn't understand why that was happening on a football field in South Dakota, where we just came to play a football game. You know, I thought their school did a decent job of trying to handle it during the game. But I thought our players did a phenomenal job of not handling it themselves during the game as well. And so, I mean, um, how do you how do you coach through that? I mean, do you put the game aside? I mean, does something else come out when you know your players are hearing those things? Yeah, you, you just, you know, when you look like me, you got to keep your eyes on the prize. And the prize was to win the game. And so... Again, you heard me talk about in spite of, that was one of our themes at Mesa, ISO, hashtag ISO, in spite of. In spite of, we got to get it done. Regardless of what the, the situation is, we got we can't control certain things. 
So in spite of, we got to keep moving. And that's what we did. Uh, we addressed it. When the, when the players told me, I told the officials it was addressed. After the game, there was some other stuff. We just decided to go to the locker room. Uh, at the time, I knew professionally that was the right decision. But that bothered me. It bothered me as a black man because I felt like I was forced to choose whether I was black or whether I was protecting our university. Um, hmm. And so I expressed that to our administration. There were some things that happened behind the scenes with them apologizing things, but it still to this day bothers me because we were blasted. We were called names. Uh, and people think when it came out, you know, there's a certain group of people that think I'm a troublemaker because I, I point out racist things uh, is what I've seen as of lately. He's a troublemaker. I'm glad he's gone. Well, if calling out things that are wrong makes me a troublemaker, then I guess I am. Uh, but we still don't get it. And so it bothers me because there's some things that they confess to that we didn't put out there, that we didn't blast those kids and those students that did that from their school. I didn't go on social media and out them and stop them from getting a job in the future and get them canceled. We didn't do any of that. And so mm. but we know as a program what happened. Uh, we were disappointed, but we moved on. The biggest thing is we won the game. And, and that's what I wanted to do. And that's what the players wanted to do. I want to turn now to Valdosta State. They're a Division II powerhouse. You said going to coach the Blazers is a dream come true. You're the program's 11th head coach, the first black coach in the school's history as well. Tell me about getting that call. <laughs> you know, again, you'll find out about me. I, I, I love my faith. And I really believe in it. And I say, I say the Valdosta State job was a God thing. I just went to practice in, at the University of Houston while I was home for the break. And a guy that I knew had worked here and, and was from here and uh, kind of said, hey, I'm going to tell Valdosta State about you. And I went, ah, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, it, you know, you hear that a lot. And so two days later, the AD texts me. And so it, it's one of those deals to where I'm honored. I'm excited to be the head football coach at Valdosta State. The Blazer Nation is real. Um, this is a football place. I've been places where football is a sport. At Valdosta State, football is the sport. And they take it really, really serious around here. I love that because if you, you, if you take football really, really serious and you won on the level that we won here at Valdosta State, then your voice is extremely loud and people will listen to you because they know that you're a winner. That's, again, how we're able to change our world. We're able to change our world by being able to put tools into people and give them tools uh, to go out and, and make the world better. And people actually listen to them because of where they play and what they've done and how they, they're associated with winning. And so um, I'm really excited about this opportunity. Um, it, it's one that I didn't see coming, but I'm sure glad the good Lord picked me. And uh, we look forward to really making even bigger waves now that we're in a program of this magnitude. Coach, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for speaking with me. No problem. Appreciate you guys. Tremaine Jackson was the first black head football coach at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. After two years, he recently left for a new coaching job in Georgia. Our next guest first joined us when he was just nine years old. Jack Bonneau of Broomfield was a budding entrepreneur who gained national attention when he was on the TV show Shark Tank for his innovative lemonade stands. 
Next into the tank is a kid entrepreneur who wants to help other kids fulfill their entrepreneurial aspirations. Hi Sharks, my name is Jack Bonneau. I'm the founder and CEO of Jack's Stands and Marketplaces and I'm from Denver, Colorado. Flash forward to today, Jack is 16 years old and a junior at Legacy High School in Broomfield, and he's still an entrepreneur. On April 30th, he hopes to hold the first TEDx youth event in Colorado, and he's looking for young people to take part. Jack, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Nathan, for having me. Before we dive into TEDx youth, I want to go back to where it all started for you. Jack's Stands and Marketplaces is essentially kind of like a lemonade stand franchise. You provide the space, the tools, the permits, and the lemonade, leaving the kids to sell products, make money, and learn some pretty important life skills too. Is Jack's Stands still in operation? Yes. So with Jack's Stands, I was able to get on Shark Tank and I was able to reach so many kids and provide them with the uh, great experience of operating a stand. I've currently transitioned Jack Stands into a nonprofit where it is working with other nonprofits that support youth entrepreneurship to continue its mission. I want to play this clip of you when we spoke back in 2015 about how you got the idea to start Jack Stands. Listen to this. So I wanted the Lego Death Star, which cost $400. What is a Lego Death Star? Um, so it's a huge Lego that has 4,000 pieces. Um, and it's um, big, round, and um, evil. And you have to put it together by hand, I'm assuming. Yes. I asked my dad if I could get it. Um, he said, sure, you can, but I'd have to pay for it. So um, I didn't know what I was going to do. So um, I asked my dad, well, how am I going to make $400? He says, well, why don't you start a lemonade stand? Uh -huh. I thought it was a great idea. You <laughs> did get that toy, and you grew your business and you now have another for-profit venture, Teen Hustle, which is a, quote, last-mile delivery service geared as a first job for teens. Uh, you started this company when you were 13. Tell us about Teen Hustle. So Teen Hustle is a last-mile service delivering e-commerce packages from Amazon lockers and products from and to neighbors through Nextdoor Finds. We're also delivering food from restaurants and convenience items from grocery stores, 100% delivered by teenagers on electric scooters and personal bikes. What propels you to be an entrepreneur at such a young age? Uh, I mean, you have two ventures that are successful and you're barely old enough to drive. <laughs> well, my entire mission throughout all of my ventures has been to spread youth entrepreneurship because I recognize the benefits and the skills that I gained uh, when I operated Jack Stands. And I just wanted to continue that mission of providing other youth with, um, with these experiences that I've been uh, so fortunate to have. As someone who has started multiple businesses, what advice would you give to someone looking to do the same at your age? So if you have an idea that you want to turn into a business, you, you just got to do it. You just got to put yourself out there. I encourage you to reach out to any uh, parents, teachers, or mentors to see how you can turn whatever idea you may have into a real business. You'll develop passion for it. You'll develop grit. And you'll get some real-life experiences that will not only benefit your business, but will benefit you down the road. Has that advice changed as you've grown older? Not really. Um, it, it, it's crazy. But I, I, when I was younger, I saw how the confidence I gained, the knowledge that I gained uh, from being able to operate my stands. And it's held true throughout uh, Jack Stands and Marketplaces and now Teen Hustle uh, with other youth. 
Jack, I want to turn to TEDx Youth now. Uh, it's a project you're working on in conjunction with TEDx Cherry Creek. For those unfamiliar with TED Talks, TED is a nonprofit organization devoted to, quote, ideas worth spreading. And you can find numerous TED Talks on the internet. TEDx are local independently organized groups with that same general idea of talking about good ideas. So, Jack, What's TEDx Youth, and why did you get involved with organizing it? So let me just give you a little background. When I was 12 in 2018, I gave my first TEDx talk at TEDx Boulder. Uh, my topic that I chose was kids can be their own best role models. And, you know, it was such a great experience. Um, and I was interested in finding a way that I could provide other youth um, the same great experience that I did and give them an opportunity to share their ideas that are worth spreading. I reached out to Michael Jeanette and Colorado Congresswoman Daphna Michelson Jeanette, uh, who over a decade have been the organizers of TEDx Cherry Creek, uh, so that they could work with me as co-organizers to bring a TEDx youth event to Colorado. They immediately said yes, and we've begun working on TEDx youth at Cherry Creek at my local high school, the high school I go to, Legacy High School in Adams 12 in Broomfield. So you're looking for kids around your age, people around your age. Now, if a teen thinks they have a good idea, what's the process for getting on that TEDx youth stage? Is there a theme? Yes. So the theme is what's your legacy? And the topics, it could be any idea that you would like to share or something that you want to leave behind in the world, like an impact you want to have. But there's no specific requirements. And that's what makes TEDx Youth very unique is that it's open to any high school student in Colorado. And that doesn't matter whether you're, you're from a public, private, charter, or homeschooled. And speaker applications are open until uh, the 29th. What if there's someone out there who knows they have a good idea, but might be kind of afraid to get on a stage? What about those teens? Well, you don't have to have any prior speaking experience or even a fully developed idea to apply because we will help you with both. And we also want to encourage um, applicants from all around Colorado um, to apply. And if selected and you do live outside the Denver-Boulder metro area, we will work with you and your family to ensure there are no roadblocks for you to speak due to distance or any other factors. So that means someone from Durango or Meeker, Colorado or the Eastern Plains could, could be a part of this event? 100%. So who's helping you narrow down the applicants? Is there a committee that, that is working on this? Yes, we do have a speaker selection committee that will work through all of the applications and uh, select those who will speak. How many speakers are you looking for? We are looking for about 10 to 14 speakers. And, and the age range you're looking for again? We are looking for high school aged students to, to speak. So this sounds like a big event that you're trying to put on here. Are, are there any sponsors or anything like that to help you get this thing off the ground? Well, all TEDx events are nonprofits, and of course, there's an expense in putting these on. And we are currently looking for any sponsor. So if anyone is interested, they can contact me at jack at tedxcherrycreek.com uh, so that we could work something. So getting back to you, Jack, uh, you're a junior now in high school, and I remember my junior year so long ago as being <laughs> super tough. It's the year you get those college tours lined up, you work hard to keep your grades up, how have you and your peers been handling the pandemic? 
Um, you know, it, it's it's definitely been a change, you know, masks all around. But luckily this year we are back in person in school, which is very nice. I know that most most students learn really well um, in person rather than online. Um, you know, it's it's been tough um, for, for all of us. But, you know, I think we're, we're handling it. And um, I'm confident that we can come through this triumphant. Yeah. Any thoughts on what you'll study in college uh, when you get there? I, I assume business, right? Yes. Um, well, I'm still deliberating. I have an interest that I've been uh, culminating for a long time uh, in physics and mathematics. Oh. So possibly a tie between business and 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 uh, my physics interest. Physics, that seems quite a distance from business, huh? Yes, it does. But if there's anything that I've learned throughout my entire journey, it's that the skills that I've gained from entrepreneurship, I can apply them anywhere. So I'm looking forward to doing that in a possible physics field. Well, best of luck to you, Jack, on the rest of your junior year and on the TEDx youth event. Uh, Please keep us posted with how things are going, all right? Sounds good, Nathan. Thank you. Jack Bonneau is a 16-year-old junior at Legacy High School in Broomfield. His startups include Jack Stands and Marketplaces and Teen Hustle, that's H-U-S-T-L. TEDx Youth applications are open now. Find out more at TEDxCherryCreek.com. Applications close on January 29th, and the event is slated to be held on April 30th. Thanks for joining us today and to our team of audio entrepreneurs. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.